0: Hebrews 3, verses 1 to 5. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. Good morning, everyone. I see we're a little more full today than we were last week. That's good. I imagine many of the Knutsons are back, and it's good to have you guys. So, welcome to everyone, especially anyone who might be here visiting with us, and uh, hopefully many of you will come back out tonight as Miles McMillan will be leading our uh, discussion class based on the lesson this morning, so I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping that some of you will come out and that you're looking forward to it too. So last week we were looking at Hebrews chapter 11. We talked about this cloud of witnesses who lived by faith. And you can see that their faith was played out by what they did. Faith came with action. They obeyed God. They followed God. They did what God said. And this week we're going to follow, follow that up with the idea of a lifetime faith. Lifetime faith is what we're talking about. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. And so we've looked at a lot of different lessons about a lot of different things, a lot of different subjects. But this morning I want us to turn our attention over to an important matter, uh, very important to the life of of a Christian. And that is the unshakable, the unconquerable lifetime faith that we need to have. And it's easy to let the things of this world get to us. It's easy to let the things of this world make us want to give up the good fight, to discourage us. The race of faith, as the Apostle Paul called it in a few of his letters. Well, we listen to the radio, we watch TV, we read the papers, and we hear about a lot of horrible things going on in the world. And so we hear about earthquakes, we hear about floods, we hear about civil wars, we hear about all these things, and we can get discouraged. And that's the news of our day right now, if you... Do any of those. Listen to the radio, watch TV, or read the newspaper. That's what you're going to read. That's what you're going to hear about. We learn of a lot of people who have lost their lives. And we start to question all of this. We, we let these things sink in our minds. When we say, why is all these things happening? And some people will even go as far as to tell themselves, why would God let these things happen? Well, first of all, let's not forget that Satan is very active in the world today. Let's not forget about him. And secondly, it is common knowledge that certain areas of the world have recurring natural disasters, and if people are going to live in these places, they must understand that there will come a time when they will be faced with danger. So, if I were to ask you what do you think of when I say California, what's the first thing you think of? You think of earthquakes, right? If I say New Orleans, what's the first thing you think of? You think of hurricanes and floods, and so there are a lot of other countries, a lot of other areas that are affected by natural disasters. We think of the Philippines, we think of Japan and other places. And so people who choose to stay and live in these places, they are aware of these things. And God should never be blamed. God should not be blamed for things that happen in the world. When we think of wars going on, places like Syria, well, God is not the one doing this. And he certainly is not happy about it. These kinds of wars happen because of the sin of men. God has given mankind free will, and he is not to be held accountable for the actions of sinful men. So we also shouldn't think that God is at our beck and call like some kind of servant, expecting him to do whatever we want. We are the servants. He is the master. We need to remember that. And on that note, the master is no happier about the things going on in the world than we are. He sees these things. He's not happy about them. But he asks us to trust him and to hold on to our faith. And if we do, we will have a permanent home of safety where there will be no more wars, no more natural disasters, no more pain and suffering, none of the things that we see in this world. This demands our continued faith. It demands a lifetime faith and obedience to his will. So now we come to our text for our lesson today, Hebrews chapter 3. Verses 6 to 12, this text shows us an example of what happens when we don't trust God, as we should, and we blame him for our troubles. In the first five verses of chapter 3, the reading that we had just not long ago, we read about Moses, we read about Jesus. Well, Moses was a faithful servant in all of God's house. Well, Jesus was and is is greater than Moses. Because he was the builder of the house, he was a greater messenger, and he brought a greater message. And he had brought a greater covenant. So think about all that Jesus had done. He was a greater messenger, he brought a greater message, he brought a greater covenant. And so he deserves more respect than Moses. But this was hard for the Jews to accept. So think about the writer here and the audience who, who he's talking to, Jewish Christians Imagine how hard it was for them to hear that, to accept that. And so they had such high admiration for Moses and the law. You might even remember the difficulty Christ had in convincing the Jews who he was and that he was of greater importance than Moses. On one occasion, the Lord said in John chapter 5, verses 45 and 46, he says, But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So imagine the difficulty that Jesus ran into trying to convince people of who he was, and that he was greater than Moses. Well, you can see that the writer here the book of Hebrews, that's what he's trying to deal with too. He's trying to address these things. So let's start verse 6, Hebrews chapter 3. And this is what we read. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So Jesus the Christ, our Lord and Savior, was faithful as a son over God's house. The church is the house of God, not the building. We, we are the house of God, the people, and Jesus is the builder. Of the house. He owns it. It belongs to him. We belong to Christ Jesus. He bought us with his precious blood. Now we are the house, his church, if we hold on to our courage and, of course, our faith as we live in this world, and if we hold on to the hope that we have, the hope of eternal life when Jesus comes back for us. So the writer of the book of Hebrews, most believed to be the Apostle Paul, as we mentioned, was speaking to Jewish Christians. Much of the book of Hebrews talks in depth about things Jews would have knowledge about, so he, it talks about the Old Testament sacrifices, it talks about the tabernacle, it talks about the Old Testament priesthood, it talks about the Old Testament high priesthood, etc, etc, et etc cetera, et cetera, et cetera. so it covers everything that was under the old covenant. The writer wanted his audience to understand that they 're under a new covenant, a better covenant, and they 're not to follow these things anymore, and he wanted them to understand that they were now with Christ under his covenant. A greater messenger, a greater message, a greater covenant had come. They were told to hold on to these greater things and not to hold on to the past. And so then the writer brings a stern warning. That's where we come to verses 7 and and onward. He comes with a stern warning to his audience. And he quoted Psalm chapter 95, verses 7 to 11. Well, Jews knew the Psalms very well. If you talk to a Jew, the Jews could probably quote them word for word off the top of their head. But this psalm would have been one in which they would have understood the history of the Israelites and what happened to them as described in Exodus chapter 17 verses 1 to 7 and also Numbers chapter 20 verses 1 to 13. In that story, it shows the Israelites lost faith. They lost trust in God and began complaining that they never should have left Egypt. It's actually an interesting story because it's kind of ridiculous when you go through it and you, you wonder, why did they complain over that? But we'll, we'll talk about it as we go through. But they tested God, they argued with Moses. And so we come to verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 3, which says, So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice. Well, I like the, the way that it starts off. Because a lot of people view the Holy Spirit as a thing, as a mystical coming and going and And that kind of thing, like the wind. But the Spirit is a person. And the fact that he speaks indicates this. Notice what it says. So as the Holy Spirit says, well, the Holy Spirit is a person. And the Holy Spirit spoke these words. He is one of the three persons of the Godhead. Three persons, one God. But we're not going to go into detail about that this morning because that's a pretty big lesson all on its own. Maybe we'll cover that later on at a later time. But what is really important for us to understand is the Holy Spirit spoke Psalm 95, 7 to 11, the verses that we read. He spoke these words. Now, if you were to compare Psalm 95, if you were to go back to the Old Testament and read Psalm 95 and read this passage here in the book of Hebrews, you will notice that there are some slight differences, and I'll point those out as we go through them. And this is because many Old Testament passages that we find in the New Testament are quoted from the Septuagint. Well, the Septuagint is often called the LXX, which are Roman numerals for 70. The Septuagint is the oldest Greek version of the Old Testament. It is said to have been translated from the Hebrew language by 70 Jewish scholars at the request of Ptolemy II in Alexandria, Egypt, somewhere between 250 and 100 BC. But listen to this. A commentator by the name of F.F. Bruce said this. He said, since most people spoke and read Greek as their primary language, and the Greek authorities strongly encouraged the use of Greek, the Septuagint became much more common than the Hebrew Old Testament. The fact that the apostles and New Testament authors felt comfortable under the direction of the Holy Spirit in using the Septuagint should give us assurance that a translation of the original languages of the Bible is still the authoritative word of God. Let me repeat that last part under the direction of the Holy Spirit in using the Septuagint that the apostles and the writers used and quoted the Septuagint should give us assurance that a translation of the original languages of the Bible is still the authoritative word of God. What that means is we have English translations and it is still the authoritative word of God. We can trust it. We could trust it. And so the, the psalm starts with the word today. It starts off today. This word comes from the Greek word "semeron" and it means on this day, this very day, now or at present. So you can see what's going on here. It says right now, at present, this very day. So it's expressing urgency right now. He's trying to get their attention. Verses 8 and 9, this is what he's talking about. So he mentions, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts right now, today. At present, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. So the Holy Spirit said, If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing. Now here's where we see some slight differences. In Psalm 95, verse 8, it says, At Meribah, instead of in the rebellion. So it's different. And Meribah means quarrel or provocation. So some translations, some of you in your translations might have it written as instead of uh, in the rebellion or instead of at Meribah, yours might say, uh, do not harden your hearts as you did as in the provocation. So yours might say as in the provocation. And that's what it means. It makes sense. And instead of during the time of testing in the desert, again, Psalm 95, 8 says, That day at Massah in the desert. So it uses these two Hebrew terms, Meribah and Massah, in Psalm 95. And so Massah means testing, tempting, or trial, which is, that's exactly what we read. The time of testing in the desert, the time at Massah, that day at Massah in the desert. So verse 9 goes on to say, Where your fathers tested and tried me for 40 years, they saw what I did. Well, the last part of that verse, Reference to the number of years is not found in Psalm 95. So here's the difference we see here that's not in Psalm. So the Jewish scholars who did the translation for, for the Septuagint thought it was important to add the detail of the 40 years. We know when we go back to the Old Testament read the account, we can see it was 40 years that they're talking about. So it wasn't wrong for them to do that. And so the message was clear. When testing came, the Israelites hardened their hearts and they stopped trusting God. They lost faith in God who just saved them. He just took them out of Egypt and all the hardship they went through in Egypt. He just took them through the Red Sea. They saw all the the plagues that were done in Egypt. All these things happened, and then now, all of a sudden, they're complaining. You know what they were complaining about? That they were thirsty. They were grumbling and complaining against God that they were thirsty and they had nothing to drink. We should go back to Egypt where we had this comfort, where we had these foods, we had this and that. Can you imagine? You imagine, if you will, if you walked up to Lake Winnipeg or Lake Manitoba, and you walked up to the, just touch your foot, touch the water, and you saw that lake just go whoop, and you saw two huge walls of water on each side, just staring at that, and you see dry land going right to the very other side of the lake. Wouldn't your mind be blown? Wouldn't you be like, whoa, whoa? Would that not be enough to convince you to trust God after seeing something like that? Or the ten plagues in Egypt, all that happened, would that not be enough to convince you to trust God and the power of God to be able to help you in your time of need? Can you imagine? And here they are complaining about water. They're thirsty. All they had to do was ask Moses. All they had to do was say, Moses, can you ask God to give us some water? That's all they had to do. So this might bring your mind back to what we talked about at the beginning of the lesson about people blaming God in times of trials. Well, as the psalmist said in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 10, verse 10 now, says this, That is why I was angry with that generation, and I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So God was angry at them, and I don't blame them. After everything he had done, they had the nerve to complain about water, the hearts of the israelites were always going astray verses 11 and 12 now take a look so i declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest see to it brothers that none of you have a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living god so as punishment god denied them the opportunity of eternal rest rest from suffering rest from the harsh world That they live in. And we know it's eternal rest that he's talking about because he gets into chapter 4 and that's what he deals with. He talks about his rest, God's rest, with him. And so, this account of rebellion from the Israelites was used as a warning for these Jewish Christians that the writer's talking to. Because the Israelites lost faith and did not trust God the way that they should have, they were denied that rest they were looking forward to. And they had unbelieving hearts. When things got tough, the tough didn't get going, they didn't move. Instead, they felt sorry for themselves and just forgot about God. So the writer of the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, says to his Jewish Christian audience, don't you do what they did. And that's what he's telling us today, too. Don't you do what they did. Don't behave the way that they did. We are to trust God during whatever trials that we faced, we have to face. It is easy to feel sorry for ourselves, and when we do, it shows a lack of faith. A lack of faith and trust in God's power to help us in our time of need. We see a principle that existed in Old Testament times, and it still exists today. Hardening your heart and rebelling against God will keep you from entering his rest. What do you do when hardship comes, when trials come? How do you deal with it? Do you turn to God the way that you should? Do you trust him the way that you should? Or do you feel sorry for yourself? Do you complain? Do you blame God for your situation? How do you handle it? God, who created the entire universe, as we saw read last week, and thinking about all that He did for the Israelites, is able to help us with our momentary troubles. If God created the entire universe, why do we find it hard to believe that He can help us with one little problem? With one difficulty that we go through. Let me give you an example. Wednesday Wednesday I go back to Saint John, New Brunswick. I'll be flying down there, be packing up the car and the wife and the dog, getting everything ready and coming back up. But we just went through a trial, a one year trial, you know, waiting for the house to be sold and waiting and waiting. And we ran into difficulties along the way. You know, there was times where it was a struggle for Jay. There was times it was a struggle for me. But in the end we trusted God. We knew that it's just a matter of God's timing. When I think about it and I look back on it, the timing is perfect. Because it's given me exactly a full year to be here, to get used to the routines, the way things work here, to get used to the rows finding my way around and everything else, and then boom, okay, now now your wife is ready to come. I'm going to find someone that'll buy your house, boom. Okay, Che can come, I can manage. I can find my way around, I know where to go, I know what I could do, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So the timing was perfect. But when I think of my trial, when I think of what I went through, I think of some of our brothers that are here that waited three, four, five years for their wives to come here. And I think, what a trial that must have been. If you want to learn about faith, go talk to one of them. Go, go talk to them and get their story, how the things that they went through during those three, four, five years waiting for their spouses to come. Think about them and their faith follow their example. But there are a couple of questions that we, need, that we need to ask. For example, how do we build our faith? How do we maintain it? How do we build our faith? How do we maintain it? Well, I'd like to read a few passages that will help to answer that very question. Take a look, if you will, at James chapter 4, verses 13 and 15. Somebody mentioned this to me the other day, and I thought, hey, this is actually a very good passage to be able to use for my lesson today. And in Hebrews chapter, or James chapter 4, verses 13 and 15 say this, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. While you do not even know what will happen tomorrow, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So, this goes hand in hand with the next passage of scripture, and then we'll just mention briefly about this. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. So, in both of those two passages, The one thing that we see that stands out is acknowledging God, acknowledging God in all that we do, remembering God in our daily busy lives, putting him first, trusting in him. Are we doing that? How do we build our faith? By putting God first. How do we build our faith? By continuing to turn to God every day in prayer, to consult him in all that we do, to not think that everything is all our plans, but to trust in God and ask him. If it will be his plans, as the Lord wills, you know, oftentimes we, we, we say a prayer and we'll say if the Lord wills it, and that's the attitude we should have. It's all about attitude. It is all about acknowledging God, making him first. And then finally, the last passage is the passage of scripture that we are reading from Psalm 95, the one in the book of Hebrews. But I want you to listen. For the verses that come before that section. And it's very interesting. So verses 7 down to 11 of Psalm 95, but look at verses 1 to 7. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks. Belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock, under his care. Listen to those powerful words. Listen to what it's saying. We need to look at God as as for who he is, the great and powerful God, the King, our Lord, our Maker, God Almighty. You know, do we have that reverence for God that we should? Do we really look to God the way that we should? Do we think of him the way that we should? There is none. There is none like him. There is only one God, God Almighty, and there is none like him. And if he can create the entire universe, then he can certainly help you with your problem, with your trial, at your time, time of need. And so that's how we build our faith and maintain it, by really putting God first at the forefront of everything that we do, not making any decisions without him, acknowledging him in everything that we do, and really trusting him, not just saying it, but actually doing it, to really trust. That's hard for us to do as humans, isn't it? We've been hurt by so many people, and and, and for us, it's hard to trust. But God asks us to trust But when does faith begin? How do we get faith? Where does it all start? Well, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. And we've looked at studies in Romans. And in Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says this. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. We get faith when we hear the message of Christ, the gospel. And the message is heard through the word. So we read the word of God and we learn that God sent his son to die for us. We learn about how much God really loved us. That's where the faith starts. God loved us, his creation. That is true faith. And we need to trust in God for what he has done for us. And so I ask you the question, have you heard about how much God loves you? Have you heard the gospel? Have you heard that wonderful good news, that message? If you haven't, won't you come forward as we sing our invitation song? Let's stand as we sing our last song of the morning.